Um, so today we'll be talking about the voluntary dissolution of a Massachusetts nonprofit organization. Uh, my name is Aaron Whitney Cicchetti. I'm an attorney in Nutter's tax department, and I frequently work with charitable and other nonprofit organizations uh, on issues related to their tax exempt and nonprofit status, uh, including formation, governance, compliance, and of course, dissolution. Um, so turn it over to uh, Bernardo here to introduce himself. Thanks, Aaron. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Bernardo Quadra. I'm an assistant attorney general uh, in the nonprofit organization's public charities division at the attorney general's office. I've been there uh, since uh, 2016. Um, also mentioned I'm chair of our well-being committee over there. We're proud of, proud of the work that we do. So I just wanted to plug that. Uh, before coming to the attorney general's office, I was uh, um, in a trust and estates practice group in Hartford, Connecticut for five years. Uh, and so happy to be here with you all today. Thanks. Perfect. All right. So um, before diving into the substance, just a few housekeeping matters. Um, this presentation updates the article written by attorneys Regina S. Rockefeller and Tamara L. Sturges and published by the Boston Bar Association Tax Exempt Committee of the BBA Business Law Section in the fall of 2009. And the PowerPoint slides created by Regina S. Rockefeller and distributed at the April 2013 BBA Tax Exempt Organization Section session on dissolution of Massachusetts public charities. All right, um, so we'll start with a, a brief disclaimer here. Um, so any uh, views expressed here are those of my own and not those of the Attorney General or the Attorney General's office. Um, they do not constitute official guidance from our office, it's not intended to serve as a statement of official position or law from the Attorney General's office. Uh, if anyone is looking for official guidance, uh, you can find those documents on our website. And you see that linked in the slide there. Um, next slide. So uh, just briefly, I just wanted to start with some quick introductory slides here um, and tell you a little bit about the division and, and, and some of the work that we do. Um, so to introduce you to the division, uh, what does the charities division do? Well, the attorney general is charged with ensuring that charitable assets are used for their intended purposes, right? And, and then making sure that the people in charge of those assets are doing what they're supposed to do. Um, that statutory authority is delegated to our charities division, uh, which in turn supports the office's compliance uh, with that statutory mandate. And we do this in a number of different ways, in a number of different sectors and areas, in probate law, investigation and regulation, and civil law enforcement. Um, so it's a pretty uh, active practice. Uh, next slide, please. And, uh, and to introduce you to charities, right? What's a public charity? Um, essentially, a public charity in Massachusetts um, uh, meets the test for being a public charity with three elements. First, the organization needs to be a nonprofit. Uh, and of course, that doesn't mean it can't generate a profit. Uh, it can, but any ex excess profits over expenses and including reasonable um, compensation have to be reinvested uh, back into the charity. Um, so first, it has to be a nonprofit. Second, it has to pursue a charitable mission. Uh, and of course, that can include a number of different um, purposes, including education and healthcare. Um, and then third, the organization has to benefit an indefinite class of beneficiaries, this, this uh, portion of the indefinite public. Um, and the best way to sort of describe that, I think, is just through uh, the examples of uh, the different end of the spectrum, right? So on, on one end of the spectrum, uh, you might identify a group of beneficiaries by um, uh, describing high school students in Western Massachusetts, right? An organization that grants scholarships to high school students in Western Massachusetts. Efficiently indefinite class of beneficiaries. On the other end of the spectrum are the GoFundMe beneficiaries, right? We often see GoFundMe's established for a particular individual or family that's going through a hardship. Um, those beneficiaries are clearly defined. That is a uh, uh, definite class of beneficiaries. And therefore, those types of GoFundMe fundraising um, activities aren't subject to our oversight, right? Um, so that's uh, a public charity. Uh, typically, public charities take uh, most commonly one of two forms, the charitable corporation or uh, the charitable trust. Uh, next slide. And today we'll be talking um, about charitable corporations uh, incorporated under Chapter 180. Uh, charitable trusts are subject to a different set of law 
and um, and and uh, terminating a trust does not fall under the jurisdiction or the um, is not subject to uh, Chapter 180. Um, so I think without turning back to Heron. Okay, great. Um, so when should the charity consider dissolving? Um, first is if the donors are no longer able or willing to support the charity's mission. Um, second, if a merger or acquisition, uh, if those opportunities have been unfruitful, um, if the volunteers of the organization are no longer committed to the organization, uh, if the finances appear to be irrevocably uh, adverse, or lastly, if the mission is no longer relevant or serves a need. And you might see one uh, or more of these um, reasons in your in your situation. So before deciding to dissolve, a charity should consider its alternatives to dissolution. Uh, dissolution is a lengthy process and of course should not be taken lightly. Um, sometimes there's another route that addresses the charity's issues short of dissolving. So the first alternative that you can consider is a merger or consolidation. Um, and this would be with a like-minded charity to achieve economies of scale and attract new clients, volunteers, and or donors. Um, the charitable sector in Massachusetts has been fairly active in recent years uh, in the mergers and acquisitions space. Uh, many charities are looking to join efforts to, among other things, cut costs. Um, so before deciding to dissolve, it may be worth exploring some potential merger or consolidation opportunities. Um, however, there are obstacles to a merger um, to keep in mind before pursuing that path. Um, for example, any liabilities of the non-surviving entity become the liabilities of the surviving entity. So diligence is very important in a merger context. Um, also, if the uh, organization has any employees, there are, are certain issues related to that that must be taken into account. Um, and employee and benefit transition matters can be complex and very time consuming. And then there's a lot of decisions to be made around the merger um, or consolidation. So, um, deciding whether it will be a merger of equals or if there will be one entity that's really treated as the surviving entity. So the second alternative to dissolution uh, to potentially consider is a voluntary reorganization by the charity that would uh, otherwise dissolve. Um, so here, as opposed to a merger or consolidation, um, you're not looking for a like-minded organization to, to partner with, combine with. Um, a reorganization would just involve uh, some internal adjustments uh, to the organization. So the charity could make governance or programmatic adjustments. Um, you should think about in this situation, what is causing the difficulties in the organization and whether there's any changes that can be made to address those issues. So for example, if the organization is seeing some revenue reduction from its programming, perhaps it can adjust its programming by adding new programs or adjusting the programs that already exist. Uh, to make sure that it's serving the needs of its charitable class and increasing revenue. Um, on the governance side of things, uh, perhaps there are staffing issues that can be addressed, um, maybe a new executive director or something along those lines, or perhaps you could recruit some new board members um, to help with some of the issues, including fundraising, if that's, if that's an area of concern. Um, and then, you know, in addition to considering alternatives, um, the trustees or directors of the organization must consider the substantial money that will need to be spent uh, to dissolve in an orderly manner. Um, and they have to avoid spending the last dollars on operations. And there's a tension here between tempting optimism and uh, realistic decision making. So, for example, um, there will uh, be there will likely be legal and accounting fees associated with dissolving. And you want to make sure that the charity has adequate reserve for those expenses um, before um, spending all the money on operations. Um, and these expenses can be difficult to predict, so it is often better to err on the side of caution here. Okay, so assuming that a charity has decided that uh, alternatives will not work and they're going to move forward with dissolving, uh, what's next? Um, one of the first steps after the decision to dissolve is made is to audit um, the funds of the organization to distinguish between restricted and unrestricted funds. If there are any restricted funds, you have to take a look at what the applicable restrictions are. Um, if it's feasible here, it is very helpful to use an independent auditing firm. Um, so there are three, I think of these funds as in three different buckets. Uh, there are two types of restricted buckets and then one type of unrestricted funds. 
Um, permanently restricted funds are restricted to a particular purpose and there is no time limit on the restriction. Temporarily restricted funds are the second type of restricted funds and those funds are restricted to a particular purpose during a specific time frame. But once that time frame is over, the funds are no longer restricted and then they move into the unrestricted funds bucket. Um, and unrestricted funds can be used for any purpose that's in alignment with the charity's uh, charitable purposes, which is set forth in the Articles of Organization. Um, so in dissolution, you must consider the restrictions um, when, in deciding where the funds should go. Um, generally, any restrictions on funds have to follow the funds. Um, in other words, the recipient of those funds will be bound by those restrictions. I say generally here because there is the possibility that you could seek out the donor of the funds and ask them to remove or uh, adjust the restriction. Um, but short of that, the restrictions need to follow the funds. So just some practical issues to address um, in the process of dissolving. Um, all legitimate debts need to be paid. Um, uh, contracts and leases need to be terminated, including equipment rentals and any rented equipment needs to be returned. Um, typically charities take uh, inventory of all the organization's contracts to see what, if anything, needs to be done to terminate them. And then you'll also need to negotiate any accounts payable with vendors. Um, so one very important decision point and maybe the most important decision point when dissolving is choosing the asset uh, recipient or recipients. Um, the entity or entities uh, to which the assets of the dissolving organization are going to be transferred um, must either have a charitable purpose similar to that of the dissolving organization or that recipient organization must agree to use the assets in accordance with the dissolving organization's charitable purpose. And again, you can find the charitable purpose in the Articles of Organization. Um, so this is a really important point and one that you'll hear uh, us say throughout the presentation, we'll remind you of. I mean, it's one that the AG's office and the court uh, will look too closely in their review. Um, related to that, um, you need to consider whether any new restrictions should be attached to the transferred charitable assets and to make sure that the recipient organization will agree to such restrictions. So again, if, if the charitable purposes between the dissolving organization and the recipient organization are not similar enough, the use of the funds or the assets must be restricted uh, to be used only for the dissolving organization's charitable purposes. So uh, a quick example is if a dissolving organization is focused on a particular geographic area and the recipient organization is focused on a wider geographic area than, than that, then the dissolving charity can restrict the use of the funds to that specific geographic area that they have historically focused on. And a quick practical note here is just uh, beware of attaching restrictions for uh, purpose of frustrating creditors. You can't take a board, wrote, board vote to restrict funds to shield them from creditors. Um, you can't just get rid of an asset knowing that there's a liability out there. So it's, it's not a workaround. And, and just on actually that, just went back that one slide, Aaron, the, the first bullet there, just to emphasize that point, um, that it's it's not so much a, a new restriction um, as it is uh, sort of memorializing a current restriction that's simply implied, right? Um, so to your point, the fact that that organization was serving a smaller, a more narrow geographic area, uh, the, the restriction is implied because the law presumes that the donor intended that those assets would be used right. consistent with that smaller organization's purposes and activities. So, Yep, great point. Um, all right, so I guess before we start jumping into um, some of the mechanics and details on dissolution, um, I sort of just wanted to start with uh, sort of a rhetorical question, right? Like, what, what function does dissolution serve? And, and we just heard a little bit about the why. Why would an organization, um, why does an organization decide to, decide to dissolve? Um, but what does the actual process accomplish? And I think that, that there's two main answers here um, that will help guide our discussion as we move through this um, presentation. One, importantly, and certainly importantly from the charities division perspective, um, is that the dissolution process is a mechanism for transferring these charitable assets to another organization and ensuring that those charitable assets are used consistent with 
their intended purpose or as near as possible to that purpose, right? Um, and, and again, that's consistent with our, our mandate um, under law to ensure the due application of charitable assets, right? So that's one, transferring assets and making sure they're used consistent with their intended purpose. Number two is sort of the more obvious one, just the formal dissolution of the corporation. Um, and so we'll be talking about these two functions uh, as we move through this presentation. Um, okay, so chapter 180 uh, does provide for uh, for two different um, sort of broad uh, mechanisms for dissolution, um, both voluntary and involuntary dissolution. Um, for charities with assets, uh, these are judicial proceedings. Um, before the single justice session of the SJC. Um, and again, consistent with the Attorney General's authority here, uh, the AGO is a party to uh, both types of dissolutions. Next slide, please. Um, for involuntary dissolutions, these are uh, rare proceedings where the Attorney General's office is the plaintiff. The, uh, the statutory authority here gives us um, authority to initiate this involuntary dissolution process. The AG is the plaintiff, um, and uh, we can bring this type of action in two circumstances. One, where the charity uh, hasn't filed with us for two consecutive years, or the attorney general is satisfied um, that the charity has been inactive and that dissolution would be in the public interest. Um, again, to sort of emphasize here, that's a that's a unusual or, or a rare circumstance, and we'll be we won't be talking about uh, involuntary dissolutions uh, further here. We're going to be focused on voluntary dissolutions, um, and this is a, a proceeding that the charity initiates here. Right, the charity is the plaintiff, and the charity initiates this or or, or begins this process following a vote by uh, a majority of the trustees and directors um, pursuant to the statute. Um, an important point here, and, and it's sort of flagged as a practice tip on the slide, but it's 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 kind of more important than just a practice tip, and it's that um, the charity really needs to be in contact with us before filing with the SJC. And in fact, because the charity is going to file with uh, a, the assent of not just the recipient charities, but also the attorney general's office, it's essentially a necessity to have this sort of interaction and discussion and um, and coordination between the dissolving charity and our office. Um, so it's important to do, but it's also helpful because it gives uh, the the dissolving charity and and our office an opportunity to discuss and resolve any potential issues or questions before the complaint is filed with the court. Um, and so, uh, if there's particular um, issues around uh, the proposed recipients. Uh, we may raise a question around that. Um, we can certainly answer questions that the dissolving charity has as well. So it's uh, a very helpful uh, way to move this process forward. Uh, next slide, please. So um, there are two types of voluntary dissolutions, and we'll talk about both of them today. Uh, there's the administrative dissolution process, and that applies to organizations that do not have any um, assets remaining. Um, and that's called an administrative dissolution process because it's um, actually not a judicial proceeding. It's uh, something that the attorney general is able to, um, uh, to, to grant and dissolve. Um, and then there's also the, the with asset dissolution, the SJC dissolution process. Um, and that's where we'll, where we'll start. Um, so for with asset uh, dissolutions, again, just sort of going big picture here for a second. Um, this is a judicial proceeding that's initiated with a dissolution complaint uh, that's filed with the SJC. Um, and in that complaint, we come back to the two functions, right? The organization is asking first, uh, asking the court to first grant it authority to transfer its remaining assets to one or more recipient charities, um, and then eventually to dissolve. This is not an adversarial proceeding. As I said, this almost always goes in with all um, uh, recipient charities and our office assenting. So um, not an adversarial proceeding. It is a two-step process. Uh, again, requesting permission to transfer, transfer happens, um, and then requesting uh, that the court order a formal dissolution. Um, I do want to make a, a few points, and, and I know Aaron touched on this a little bit, the importance on, uh, of identifying the proper beneficiaries. Um, 
So Section 11A under Chapter 180 requires that uh, any remaining assets to be distributed who be distributed to a charity uh, need to be used for similar public charitable purposes, right? And this is the application, that quoted language is the application of the CPRE doctrine, uh, that charitable assets need to be used uh, as near as possible to the donor's original intent, right? So that quoted language is, is really important. Second, um, again, going back to what Aaron was talking about earlier, this is a decision that the board needs to make uh, before filing the complaint, really before drafting the complaint, because the complaint makes the case for why these uh, this charity or, or multiple charities are the appropriate recipients of these assets. Um, so the dissolving charity really needs to think hard and carefully about how the recipient organization or organizations can best honor the charitable purposes that are attached to the assets. And as we said before, they can either be expressly imposed by the, by the donor or, um, or otherwise restricted um, as to the, the general purposes of the dissolving organization, right? Um, and so to sort of give another example, uh, if I were to give a $50,000 unrestricted gift to an animal rescue that later looks to dissolve, um, that animal rescue can't transfer those assets to a local uh, food pantry or to a local childcare program. Because even though they were unrestricted assets, the law imposes um, the, the, the purposes of the, of, of the charity on those assets. Um, so there is that implicit restriction, that implied restriction on those assets. And then finally, uh, just the last point on, on the selection of the beneficiaries, you know, you hear me saying charity or charities as recipients. You can have one or multiple charities identified as recipients. Um, but it's important to remember that the more charities that are identified, uh, the longer it can take to move through this process. Um, mechanically, each charity needs to assent to uh, to multiple pleadings, right? And so obtaining signatures on those assents can take time. Each recipient charity also needs to sign an, aff an affidavit of receipt. Again, this takes time. And then within the body of the complaint, um, each additional charity uh, needs to have sufficient support in the, in the narrative uh, that justifies why that charity is an appropriate recipient, reflecting the consideration of the board. So certainly not saying that you can't do it. Uh, we, in fact, see it uh, not infrequently, um, and, and we assent to those petitions. It, it can be totally appropriate, but just to be aware that it takes time. Um, all right, and then uh, just in the next slide, as we start to walk through some of the details here, as, as I mentioned, the parties to this dissolution complaint include the, the dissolving charity as the plaintiff, um, and then as co-defendants, you've got the Attorney General's office, as well as the recipient charities. Erin? Perfect. Um, okay, so now we'll dive into kind of the nitty gritty of, of the process of putting together all the dissolution documents and, and uh, stepping forward uh, those motions. Um, so step one is to confirm or achieve compliance with all registration and filing requirements. Um, so to verify the status of your organization, um, you may check the division's website or uh, your organization's own records, of course, to ensure that it has registered with the AG's office and submitted complete annual reports to the AG's office. Um, the annual reports are the form PC and appropriate attachments. If you're unsure, uh, you can call the division to check the compliance status of your organization. Um, and it's important to do this before proceeding any further in the process because um, you need to be up to date before you can uh, submit anything else. Yeah, and, and I'll just emphasize that point that, that we won't be able to review the rest of the of the of the dissolution package until we have confirmation that the organization is in compliance. Yeah, thanks. Okay, and uh, right. So if you're not in compliance, of course you need to file any of those missing form PCs and, and attachments. Um, if your organization is exempt from filing with the AG's office, um, for example, churches are exempt. Um, you must file a financial affidavit summarizing the organization's financial activities for the last three years. So just because you're not filing the form um, PC uh, doesn't mean that there's other financial data that you don't need to provide. So step two in the process is taking the required board action. And Bernardo's already touched upon this, but 
um, you need to ensure that the organization has complied with the notice and voting requirements for dissolving under Massachusetts General Laws, Chapter 180, Section 11A-B. Uh, and again, generally, that's a majority vote of the board. Um, you also need to generate an officer certificate attesting to the board action and its adequacy. Um, there is a sample officer certificate on the division's website that you can look to. Um, and uh, again, another reminder here that the entity or entities to which the assets are being transferred must have a charitable purpose similar to the dissolving organization or the, dissolve, the recipient organization must agree to use the assets in accordance with the dissolving organization's charitable purpose as set forth in the articles. Um, the officer certificate should specify that the receiving entity, um, specify who the receiving entity is and articulate whether the assets are to be used for the uh, dissolving organization's general purposes or whether they're restricted in any way to ensure that they're used in conformance with the dissolving organization's charitable purposes. Okay, so step three is to complete the form PCF, and this is the final form P, is a form PC, the final um, annual report submitted to the AG's office. Um, an organization that is required to report to the division must complete and submit a form PCF. And again, a sample of this form and all the other forms that we're referencing today are available on the division's website. Um, Typically, in my experience, the charity's accountant is the one that handles the filing of this form and the completion of this form. Um, it includes a lot of financial data, data that uh, accountants are best equipped to, to handle. Um, organizations that are not required to report to the AG's office, uh, again, such as churches, do not need to complete the form PCF, but again, there, there's other financial data that must be submitted. Um, and a quick note here that um, the form PCF is not for a full fiscal year. Um, so if, for example, you are a charity and you're um, looking to submit your you know, dissolution complaint in, in this month, you know, April of 2023, you would owe a full 2022 uh, form PC to the AG's office and then a form PCF for the stub year, January 1, 2023, uh, through your dissolution submission date. So. Um, you would still owe that that normal 2022 form PC, and then you have the stub year that the form PCF takes into account. So there's no need to include the following with the form PCF. Um, and we point this out because these items are generally included in the typical form PC filing. Um, so there's no need to include a filing fee. There's no need to include the Form 990 or the Form 990 PF, uh, which are the annual information returns submitted to the IRS each year. Um, the 990 used for public charities and the 990 PF used for private foundations. And there's also no need to uh, submit any audited or reviewed financial statements. Um, an important note here though, is that the division reserves the right to require additional uh, financial and operational information if necessary or, or appropriate for its review. Um, and I, in my experience, have had some back and forth with the division on providing financial information. So I think it's you know, completely normal um, for this to be an iterative process and for additional information to be requested. I think the goal is just to get everything um, uh, sorted out before any submission to the court. And, and so uh, the AG is very helpful in working through charities in this process. So step four is to complete what's called the dissolution worksheet. Um, this form summarizes at a very high level uh, the charity's financial activities over the past four fiscal years. Again, there's a sample form on the division's website for this. And again, in my experience, the charity's accountant is typically the one that handles uh, this form. Uh, the financial data requested um, in this form is um, pretty similar to that requested in the form PCF. And so it's important that those two match up. Um, and of course, that the dissolution works out, worksheet matches up with the uh, previously filed form PCs. Okay, so uh, step five is to pre prepare the dissolution complaint and accompanying documents. Um, so these include the judicial dissolution complaint, which we've talked about already, but um, again, the complaint sets forth the reasons for the dissolution and where the assets will be transferred, among other things. Um, there's an emotion for entry of an interlocutory order, 
And this is a motion to ask the court for permission to transfer the assets and wind down and dissolve. So this is, again, this is a motion before any assets are transferred. Um, and then you submit a proposed interlocutory order. So this is a proposed order for the court to enter to allow for the transfer of assets and to allow for the winding down and dissolution. Um, and the court can adopt, you know, as is your proposed interlocutory order or make adjustments as it sees fit. Okay, so uh, again, samples are available uh, on the division's website for all of these forms. But an important point here is that these aren't fill in the blank forms. Um, they need to be tailored to the organization's specific uh, circumstances. Um, so you'll see blanks on the forms when, when you go to look at them on the website, but um, your job isn't done once those blanks are filled in. Um, the complaint, uh, you know, is, is the document that has the meat of, of the dissolution package. Um, it has to include all relevant facts relating to the organization's dissolution and the transfer of its remaining assets. Um, it needs to state the parties and each of the parties' charitable purposes. It needs to state the grounds for the dissolution. It needs to request the transfer of the funds to another charity for a similar charitable purpose. Um, once again, just a reminder to think hard about where the funds will be going and make sure the purposes align. Um, and it's important to make the case um, that the recipient chari is, charity is the uh, appropriate recipient of the assets, as Bernardo has already said. Um, in my experience, I've seen, uh, you know, a heavier burden in two situations. Um, one is when a recipient is, uh, when the recipient charity is out of state. Um, typically, I think in that case, um, you'll need a thorough explanation of why there's no option in Massachusetts um, for their assets to go, and also um, why the funds or the property uh, are appropriate to go outside of Massachusetts. Um, typically, or I'd say more often than not, um, the judgment of the dissolution is on the pleadings and there's no appearance that's necessary, but I have seen a case um, involving an out-of-state recipient where the judge asked the parties to come in and answer some questions um, about the out-of-state recipient. Another example um, where there may be a heavier burden um, in, you know, in the complaint is uh, a transfer to a donor advised fund. Um, the court in the AG's office will be focused again on um, how the funds will be spent by the donor advised fund. Um, Bernardo, I don't know if you want to comment more on that, but um, typically I think because donor advised funds are set up for such broad charitable purposes, we just want to make sure that um, in that case, the specific charitable purposes outlined in the dissolving charities articles of organization are being carried out. That's right. And, you know, it, it might take a little bit more um, back and forth between the organization and the donor advised fund to ensure that the, that the DAF can recognize those restrictions. And so, you know, we kind of deal with these as, uh, you know, one offs. Um, there's been different ways that these have been approached, but you're absolutely right. Um, the concern is the same as it is with other organizations where you've got the smaller org uh, transferring assets to a broader organization. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so the complaint must also state the approximate assets and liabilities of the transferring charity. Um, and also uh, make sure that you have the language of the complaint um, lined up with the language of the inter interlocutory order and specifically that the purposes in each of those documents are lined up. Um, I know that's something that um, you know will be important as you proceed in this process. And then just a um, another uh, logistical point is that the motion for interlocutory order will need to be signed by the charity dissolving, the AG's office, and any charities receiving any assets. So again, um, this process can take a while if you have more than one charities receiving assets. So um, there can just be a lot to track down there. Okay, so here just quickly is a snapshot of the sample complaint for voluntary dissolution available on the division's website. Um, again, you'll see the blanks that I referred to earlier, but um, you know, again, your job is not done once those blanks are filled in. Uh, you really need to build the case in this. All right, thanks, Aaron. Um, so once you've got those documents pulled together, you've got a draft, you've you're in compliance. Um, you know, I think you're ready to send that full dissolution complaint package to our division. Um, so again, it's going to include the completed form PCF, the officer certificate, the dissolution worksheet, 
as well as the, the judicial complaint package, which is essentially the pleadings. Um, and that's going to be the complaint, the motion for interlocutory order, assented to by each charity, um, and the proposed interlocutory order. So that's the full package that's coming to our office um, and, and represents that sort of step one of the, of the two-step process with the SJC. Um, and so we get the package and we review it. And, um, you know, the organization's in compliance, great. We review the supporting documents um, and pay particular attention, of course, to the complaint. The reasoning that's been proposed for the uh, for the proposed recipients, um, you know, we expect to have probably some uh, degree of conversation and discussion with the dissolving charity. Um, our first look at the draft complaint may generate questions that could result in uh, some proposed edits or revisions. So. Um, you know, once you get this, this full package together, there still may be more work to do. Um, and so just setting expectations there that, again, that part is also an iterative, iterative process. Um, I, I'd also mention that when you send that package over, you don't have to send originals. In fact, you don't have to send hard copies. I think we very much prefer receiving um, electronic copies. It's just the most efficient and easiest way to uh, to get those documents to us and to facilitate our review. So electronic versions for our review uh, works great. The SJC has been fantastic about um, about processing electronic copies anyways. So uh, so once we complete our review, um, we get back copies of um, of assigned assent in in uh, signed electronically most of the time. Um, and 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 you get that once we've you know we've completed the process, we've completed the review. We've signed electronically the uh, the motion for interlocutory order, and th at that point, the charity is uh, with everything signed and ready to go. Is able to file with the SJC. Um, the link for filing there is available on on the slide. You can also find it on our website. Again, the SJC has been um, really great about uh, being nimble and and up to date with its uh, processing of electronic filings. Uh, next slide. Um, as Aaron said, uh, the vast majority of the time, these reviews are handed uh, are handled on the papers. So, um, very rarely do we get called in. Occasionally, we may get a question from the clerk, but uh, but most of the time, the court looks at it. And, and honestly, over uh, over recent months, um, has been pretty efficient in reviewing these um, both steps, both stages of the dissolution complaint process. So, once the court completes its review. Assuming it it approves the uh, the motion, uh, parties get email notice and um, and a copy of the interlocutory order from the court authorizing the charity to move forward with transferring its assets. Uh, perfect. Yeah, and that brings us to step eight in the overall process, which is to pay down the debts of the organization and to transfer the assets. Um, and again, you're waiting till you have the interlocutory order in hand from the court um, to transfer those assets. Um, the transfer of the assets must be done in accordance with the interlocutory order. Um, so for example, example, the inter interlocutory order might say that the assets must be transferred subject to some sort of restriction. So um, you need to make sure you follow those restrictions. Um, after the assets have been transferred, the debts have been paid down. There is another set of documents uh, to prepare. Um, the first document in that set is an affidavit of compliance. Uh, and this document certifies to the court that the assets were transferred in accordance with the interlocutory order. So it's signed by an officer of the dissolving organization, and it includes a statement of uh, what assets were transferred and when. And then similarly, on the other side of things is the affidavit of receipt. So um, this is a document that certifies to the court that the assets were received by the recipient entities. So you might have one or more affidavits of receipt, depending on how many charities are receiving assets. Um, so these affidavits are signed by uh, officers of the organizations receiving the assets, and they include similar inter information for, uh, to the affidavit of compliance. Um, you need to specify the type of assets, uh, the value, and the date of receipt. And again, samples are available on the division's website for those. Great. And so really, as before, as we did in step one, um, we're going to review the completed sort of step two package 
the same way we did with the initial package, right? So um, in order for the charity to finally submit its final request to the court, it's going to need the uh, the division's assent on behalf of the attorney general's office. Um, and and we'll, we'll we'll provide that after we've completed that review. It, it, it's uh, less detailed, you know, really what we're looking at, um, we're going to review the affidavits and confirm that the numbers match from what was um, previewed in the complaint um, and just confirm that the motion for entry of judgment and the and the proposed judgment um, all uh, are in line and, and in order. The proposed judgment is is a relatively short order. Uh, it's largely um, or mostly boilerplate, although certainly customized to the to the details of the of the dissolution. Um, but uh, but once we uh, review those, we'll provide our our assent again, likely electronically, and then. Um, Next slide. Um, uh, yeah, and 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 again, with with the other pleadings, there's samples available on our website, uh, templates that you can use. Next slide, and then uh, and then the or dissolving organization will file that final judgment uh, package with the SJC. Again, uh, likely you'll be able to do that electronically. Um, and the way that the SJC processed the first stage, it's going to process the second stage. It's it's uh, administrative. It's on the papers. Uh, usually, not a lot of questions come from the court, um, and they've been really uh, great and efficient at processing these. Um, the court uh, approves that final motion for entry of final judgment. Uh, we get electronic notice. The order is delivered uh, by email, and um, and that essentially uh, dissolves the organization um, uh, by virtue of that order. Um, next slide, yeah, so uh, let's see. Yeah, and, uh, next slide actually. Right, and so then, um, and then once the organization is uh, is formally dissolved, then, uh, then the, the dissolved organization will need to notify the Secretary of the Commonwealth and any other agencies that need to be notified of its, um, of its formal dissolution. Um, so uh, just briefly to talk about administrative dissolutions. Um, so as a reminder, this is a situation where the organization does not have any remaining assets or is not expected to have any remaining assets after um, reasonable wind down expenses, right? Um, and so the uh, the statute provides a mechanism for this administrative dissolution process that does not go through uh, the SJC and uh, really requests that the Attorney General's office um, grants and formally dissolves the organization. Um, let's see, uh, next slide. So uh, an important point to make here is that charities can't sort of uh, engineer a no asset uh, dissolution scenario, right? There's no self-help um, uh, permitted in this situation. So um, a charity that has significant remaining assets or uh, significant enough that it should go through a with asset judicial dissolution process can't on its own make a, a, a grant or an unusual distribution that's inconsistent with its purposes or, or activities in order to get its number to zero or, or close to zero. Um, the, the, uh, the division, our office, won't administratively, can't administratively dissolve an organization that engages in that sort of self-help, self-engineered, uh, no asset dissolution. And, and there's, again, further guidance on our website that talks about uh, the administrative uh, dissolution process. Next slide. Um, so, and, and, and the, the guidance you'll find on our website largely tracks what we've just talked about. So I won't go into detail on that. It's, it's a lot of the same um, important points, right? The organization needs to be in compliance. We won't be able to proceed without um, ensuring and, and confirming that the organization's up to date with our office. The organization will have needed to take board action to approve um, the, the, the dissolution process. There is uh, filing requirements, including the form PC that needs to come in with us in the, in the dissolution worksheet. Um, and, and really the main point of departure is gonna be the, uh, the administrative dissolution petition, which is really just a two page petition that's addressed to uh, our office. There's a, a, a template available on our website. Um, and, and with that dissolution petition and, and the um, accompanying documents that will come into our office again, 
electronically by email is going to be the best way to submit that. Um, and then we'll engage in that same process. The division will review the materials, we'll review the petition, um, you know, we'll look back at filings to sort of confirm whether or not there had been any um, um, uh, premature transfers, not in the ordinary course of the organization's business. Um, again, looking for that kind of self-engineered uh, no-asset dissolution. Uh, but assuming that wasn't the case, assuming everything's in order, we will issue a notice of dissolution. And uh, that just comes uh, electronically by email. Uh, organizations will receive uh, a cover letter and a notice of dissolution from us, effectively dissolving the organization. And once that happens, again, uh, the, the charity will, the dissolved charity will need to notify appropriate agencies as to its status. Um, and then on, on this last slide here, uh, for me at least, this is just an example of what that administrative dissolution petition looks like. It's almost like a letter to our office. The template's available on our website. As uh, the other templates are set up, there's spaces for filling in the blank, but you're also going to want to do more than just popping in your name. Uh, you're going to want to justify and explain sort of what happened, and the prompts are there. Okay, great. Um, and I'll just emphasize that from a practitioner's uh, perspective, um, the division's website is extremely helpful in setting uh, forth these steps and, and um, you know, everything that you should be considering as you go through the motions here. Um, so uh, definitely recommend um, taking a look there as well. Um, so before closing out today, we just want to walk through some, um, some practical issues to consider. Um, one is that you could consider using an accounting firm to pay payables and collect receivables during dissolution uh, after perhaps your employees have left for other jobs. Um, you could consider retaining a law firm to handle uh, the dissolution and the oversight of the pending litigation. So um, essentially handling all the documentation that we've um, talked about today, um, perhaps short of uh, the dissolution worksheet in the form PCF, um, which are more in an accountant's um, area of expertise. Um, bequests received after the closure of operations, but prior to dissolution by the SJC, generally must follow where the other funds go. So to whatever recipient charities um, you've set forth in your complaint. Um, you could consider severance to retain employees until the safe closure of operations. Um, there is usually work to be done right up until that legal dissolution. So right up until you receive the dissolution order from the court. Um, you should notify terminated employees of any post-termination benefits. Um, I myself am not an employment lawyer, but there are COBRA and unemployment considerations to also keep in mind here. Um, you should consider what records must be retained, uh, for how long and by whom. Um, you might have a record retention and destruction policy to consider as well. Um, and be aware of confidentiality concerns here in transferring any records uh, to the recipient charity. Um, there are WARN Act and Department of Unemployment Insurance requirements for termination of employees to consider and special requirements for hospital closures. And then lastly, um, you know, in line with notifying any appropriate agencies, um, your accountants will need to handle the preparation and filing of uh, the final Form 990, Form 990EZ, the 990N or 990PF. Uh, the 990, the 990EZ, and the 990N are used for public charities, um, and it just depends on how much, uh, basically, your organization's revenue on which form is required to be filed, and then the 990PF is for private foundations. Um, these forms must be filed with the IRS no later than four months and 15 days after the dissolution order, so after the legal dissolution. Um, on the uh, forms, there's a place for you to check final return or terminated. Um, and on the 990N, which is an, uh, just uh, electronic postcard, um, you should answer yes to, to the termination question on there. And then for the Form 990 and 990EZ, um, you'll also need to file uh, the Schedule N to those forms and then uh, attach some, um, some other attachments. So a certified copy of the Articles of Dissolution or the resolution of the governing board uh, approving the dissolution. Um, okay, so with that, um, uh, there's a Q&A function, so feel free to send us any questions that you may have, but um, 
and here's our contact information if, if questions arise uh, after the webinar is over. But um, anything else to add on your end, Bernardo? Um, well, I, I did see one question come in. Um, so an attendee asked if the charity is insolvent when liquidating, do the gift restrictions or the creditor's rights take priority over the remaining assets? Um, and there it depends on if they are uh, specific donor expressed restrictions um, as to how those assets are to be used versus unrestricted gifts. And if it's the former, um, those, uh, those restrictions would uh, protect those assets um, as opposed to the, uh, the unrestricted assets. Um, Aaron, unless there's something else you'd add to that. No, I, I, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, creditors' rights and the order of that can get complicated, but no, I think that generally covers it. Um, it's a good question, and, and it does come up um, occasionally. Um, no, I was just going to drop in the uh, the chat a couple of um, a couple of links here, and hopefully these can go out to everyone who's in attendance. Uh, this is the link to our website. Uh, you heard us reference a number of times our website. Um, the, the the steps, the guidance, the the links, the templates are all going to be on that page. I just dropped in the chat. Um, also, I think a helpful website is the um, is the appellate court's docket search. So, uh, so you're able to look at um, at filed uh, dissolution, not not the complaints themselves. The pleadings aren't available, but you can look at the docket and um, and the the text or the language of the orders, both the interlocutory order as well as the the final judgment. Um, does get included in the docket on the um, on the on the appellate court's website, so you can obviously see that text there, but also check the status of um, of the dissolution. And then, um, just to drop in the chat, our um, our email, and uh, you heard us say a few times that you can um, send in your your documents and your um, your dissolution package for us to review, that's the best way to uh, to reach out to our division. <clears throat> well, thanks everybody for attending. Thanks all.